Good day, and thank you for standing by. Welcome to the Open Door Fourth Quarter 2022 Earnings Conference Call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. After the speaker's presentation, there will be a question and answer session. To ask a question during the session, you will need to press star 11 on your telephone. You will then hear an automated message advising your hand is raised. To withdraw your question, please press star 11 again. Please be advised that today's conference is being recorded. I would now like to hand the conference over to your speaker today, Elise Wong, Vice President of Investor Relations. Please go ahead. Thank you and good afternoon. Details of our results and additional management commentary are available in our earnings release and shareholder letter, which can be found on the Investor Relations section of our website at investor.opendoor.com. Please note that this call will be simultaneously webcast on the Investor Relations section of the company's corporate website. Before we start, I would like to remind you that the following discussion contains forward-looking statements within the meaning of the federal securities laws. All statements other than statements of historical fact are statements that could be deemed forward-looking, including, but not limited to, statements regarding Open Door's financial condition anticipated financial performance, business strategy and plans, market opportunity and expansion, and management objectives for future operations. These statements are neither promises nor guarantees, and undue reliance should not be placed on them. Such forward-looking statements involve risks and uncertainties that may cause actual results to differ materially from those discussed here. Additional information that could cause actual results to differ from forward-looking statements can be found in the risk factor section of Open Door's most recent annual report on Form 10-K for the year ended December 31st, 2022, as updated by our periodic reports filed after that 10-K. Any forward-looking statements made in this conference call, including responses to your questions, are based on management's reasonable current expectations and assumptions as of today and Open Door assumes no obligation to update or revise them, whether as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise, except as required by law. The following discussion contains references to certain non-GAAP financial measures. The company believes these non-GAAP financial measures are useful to investors as supplemental operational measurements to evaluate the company's financial performance. For a reconciliation of each of these non-GAAP financial measures to the most directly comparable GAAP metric, please see our website at investor.opendoor.com. I will now turn the call over to Kerry Wheeler, Chief Executive Officer of Opendoor. Good afternoon. Also on the call with me today is Christy Schwartz, our Interim Chief Financial Officer, and Dodd Frazier, President of Capital Markets in our Enterprise Business. I'm looking forward to speaking with you today not only because it's my first earnings call as CEO, but because of our clarity as to the path ahead, which I believe will make Open Door stronger than before. While navigating a major housing cycle has not been easy, we've never lost sight of our vision. We are building a managed marketplace for residential real estate that will enable consumers to buy, sell, and move at the tap of a button. Challenging times like these have the benefit of increasing urgency, demanding focus, and putting teamwork front and center. That's energizing and part of why I decided to take the CEO role. It's clear to me what our value proposition is for customers and where we need to focus at this moment. I also believe deeply in what we're building towards. 
Our value proposition is incredibly strong. About 99% of home sellers still go through the traditional real estate process, a process that remains offline, uncertain, and totally broken. Customers come to us because they crave the certainty and convenience of our cash offer that they cannot get anywhere else. Even in this moment of high spreads, we are able to convert over 10% of real sellers and earn an NPS of nearly 80. We stand alone in what we're able to offer consumers today. Given our current coverage of almost 30% of all real estate transactions in the U.S. today between our buy box and the markets we're in, we have a significant runway for future growth. As for right now, we are highly focused on stabilizing our core business and ultimately returning to positive free cash flow, and we're making solid progress. As of year end, we sold or were in contract to sell two-thirds of the loss-making homes acquired before the housing market reset, also known as our Q2 cohort, and we expect they'll be behind us shortly. The homes we've acquired since the reset are outperforming our expectations and are on track to deliver contribution margins in line with our 4 to 6% annual margin target once they're fully sold. However, we've lowered our acquisition volumes via higher spreads in our offers, coupled with lower marketing spend. We expect to keep relatively high spreads in the near term, given continued uncertainty into how the housing market will perform. That said, we have reduced our spreads from last year's record level based on early indicators of stabilization in the housing market, and we'll continue to do so as we see more consistent positive macro signs. Ultimately, we would expect lower spreads to translate into higher acquisition volumes. In the meantime, we're going to manage our cost structure in light of how expected volumes are pacing this year and next with the goal of returning the business to adjusted income profitability in 2024, assuming some normalization in the housing market. In addition to stabilizing our first-party business, we are aligning on three key areas in 2023 to further our progress towards building the managed marketplace for residential real estate. First is to enable more sellers to choose open door. No matter the macro backdrop, sellers value the certainty and simplicity that an open door offer provides. This year, we're focused on diversifying our demand funnel so that more home sellers start the journey with Open Door. The recent launch of our Zillow partnership is one key example set to substantially increase our reach in a scalable and efficient way. We're also expanding our List with Certainty product, which gives sellers the option of listing on the MLS while retaining the certainty of an Open Door offer that they can take at any time. Second is to realize greater operational efficiencies throughout the business by shifting our focus from building for scale and velocity to strengthening our foundational pricing, operations, and customer platforms. This includes continued improvement in pricing capabilities to increase offer competitiveness and inventory terms. We will also invest in refactoring our tech platform and infrastructure to enhance productivity and reduce fixed expenses. We are going after at least 100 basis points of margin improvement from all these initiatives by year end the full impact of which we expect to realize in 2024. I'll be disappointed if we don't do better than that. And finally, we're building exclusives, our third-party product offering that will be critical to creating a managed marketplace. This will position Open Door to have a mix of on- and off-balance sheet transaction volumes to enable capital-efficient market share gain for years to come. We plan to scale this product in three phases. First, we're focused on perfecting the consumer experience. Second, we will build liquidity and network effects in an individual market. And third, we'll refine our playbook and scale to all markets. Given our highly focused investment approach this year, we expect to be in phases one and two for 2023, 
meaning we'll go deep in selected markets to build liquidity and selection that's required for a great user experience. While our ambitions remain significant long-term, we're realigning our near-term goal to 30% of transactions in our marketplace by the end of the year in those markets where we've launched exclusives. As we look ahead, we're energized about our future. We've set clear goals that will stabilize the business in the short term while strengthening our foundation for the long term. And we believe we have the team, the balance sheet, and plans in place to ensure we realize these goals. With every customer we serve, we're more convinced that the current process of buying and selling a home is broken, and that Open Door is in a position like no other to continue to transform the status quo and be the category winner that we've always envisioned. And with that, I'll pass the call over to Christy to discuss our financial highlights. Thanks, Carrie. Our fourth quarter results reflect actions taken since Q2 to navigate changes in the housing market. We delivered $2.9 billion of revenue, down 25% versus prior year due to slower resale clearance rates and our decision to reduce our acquisition pace beginning mid-year during a time of significant market uncertainty. However, we ended the full year with $15.6 billion in revenue, which was 94% higher than 2021. This growth was driven by our strong first-half performance. We purchased 3,427 homes in the fourth quarter, down 64% versus the prior year. For the full year, we acquired 34,962 homes, down 5% versus 2021. Our gross profit was 2.5%, and our contribution margin was negative 7.2% in the fourth quarter, which reflects our resale mix that is weighted to the Q2 cohort of longer-dated, lower-margin homes, as well as the seasonal softness typically seen in the fourth quarter. Our new book of homes, or homes we offered on starting in July of last year, is performing well above our expectations and off to a stronger start than acquisition cohorts from prior years. This demonstrates the strength of our value proposition, which, despite record spreads, still enables us to create attractive cohorts in a negative HPA environment. Notwithstanding the macro challenges we faced beginning in the second quarter of 2022, our full-year contribution margin was 3.4% compared to our annual contribution margin target of 4 to 6%. Adjusted EBITDA loss was $351 million, and adjusted operating expenses totaled $144 million in the fourth quarter, both consistent with guidance. We ended 2022 with adjusted EBITDA loss of $168 million versus adjusted EBITDA of $58 million in 2021. Turning to our balance sheet, as of the end of the year, we had total capital of $2 billion comprised of $1.3 billion in unrestricted cash, cash equivalents, and marketable securities, and $670 million of equity invested in our homes. In addition, we had $12 billion in non-recourse asset-backed facilities, which is significantly in excess of current inventory levels. We expect that we will reduce our committed capacity in 2023. This will lower our required restricted cash levels and associated interest costs. As we enter 2023, we are highly focused on preserving capital and operating with strong cost discipline. Our goal is to return the business to positive adjusted net income upon delivering approximately $10 billion of annualized resale revenue, which we expect to achieve by mid-2024. Assuming some normalization in the housing market, we expect to be able to return to this pace by resuming the market share we had three years ago, adjusted for the more than doubling of our market footprint. 
We are continuing to operate with a cautious stance in the near term, as we believe the Fed's actions will continue to dictate the outlook for housing. That said, as Carrie mentioned, we have started to see some early signs of housing stabilization, which has in turn allowed us to reduce spreads from the record levels we were embedding for most of the back half of last year. In terms of guidance, we expect our Q1 revenue to be between $2.45 to $2.65 billion, and adjusted EBITDA loss to be between $350 and $370 million. Adjusted OPEX, which we define as the delta between contribution margin and adjusted EBITDA, is expected to be around $130 million. Consistent with this guidance, we expect our contribution margins will trough in the first quarter before returning to positive levels in the second half of the year as we increase our new book of inventory. 2023 is an important year for Open Door. We will lean into our core strengths and operate with agility and efficiency across the business to ensure that we exit the year stronger and more resilient. We will also invest our capital wisely, focusing on the initiatives that best position us for long-term sustainable growth. Our goal remains to be a profitable market leader and generational company. I will now open the call for questions. Thank you. As a reminder, to ask a question, please press star 1-1 on your telephone and wait for your name to be announced. To withdraw your question, please press star 1-1 again. We ask that you please limit yourself to one question. Please stand by while we compile the Q&A roster. Our first question comes from the line of Nick Jones with JMP Securities. Your line is now open. Great. Thank you for taking the questions, if I could ask two. Um, on first, uh, just around kind of negative unit margins, um, when we think about the full year, it sounds like maybe the first half will still be negative and then it'll improve in the back half. Is that the right way to think about it? Um, and then I have a follow-up. Hey, Nick, I'm going to turn it over to Christy, uh, the new voice on our call today. Just by way of background, Christy's been with Open Door for six years. She's our chief accounting officer and has very capably separated into the interim CFO role. So I'll hand over to you, Christy. Hi, Nick. Happy to take the question. Uh, we expect to return to positive unit margins by the second half of 2023. Um, right now, our results are reflecting a mix of old book and new book, and we've added some transparency on the margins of each book into our shareholder letter. Uh, we've been very focused on selling our old book as expeditiously as possible while also preserving margins, and we expect 85% to be sold through or in contract by the end of Q1. As soon as we cycle through the Q2 offer cohort, we're into new book inventory, and we feel really good about those margins. The new book of inventory delivered 9.7% contribution margin in Q4, and we expect it to perform in line with our target of 4 to 6% contribution margin once fully sold through. So as such, we expect to return to positive unit margins by the second half as the mix of inventory we're selling shifts back to the new book. Great, thanks. And then, and then maybe on just some of the efficiencies, can you maybe uh, unpack uh, where we should look to see those show up as we progress through 2023? Yeah, I mean, I'll take that, Nick. It's, it's Carrie. I mean, it's really across the entirety of our business. Uh, it'll show up a little bit in the, in the CM line, but it'll also show up in our variable SG&A and our fixed OPEX structure. It's really a host of initiatives designed to uh, improve margins, uh, reduce costs, increase operator efficiency, what have you. So we'll show up across the board. Great. Thank you both. Okay. Thank you. Our next question comes from the line of Jay McCandless with Wedbush. Your line is now open. 
Hey, thanks for taking my questions. Um, I guess the first one, could you talk again? I missed what you were saying about um, the 100 BIPs, I guess, of, of cost reductions by 24 from those structural efficiencies and cost savings. Could you break that out, please? Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, it's Carrie again. You know, we um, sitting here today in a moment where we have you know, lower volumes in the system. It is the perfect opportunity for us, frankly, to go off for a lot of basis points we have in the system and just be more efficient. We've been building for years for scale and velocity, and now we want to build for long-term efficiency and really build more durable savings back into the business. Those savings are going to come, as I just said to Nick, across a whole host of areas. Uh, some of it will show up in the contribution margin line, i.e. in the unit line. Some of it will show up in our variable SG&A, just in the efficiency of our operators, our home ops team, uh, market ops. It'll show up also in lower fixed OPEX over time as we reduce some of our direct spend. Those are initiatives that we are going after through the course of 2023. The full impact of them, we don't expect to realize, though, until 2024. And that's where the 100 basis points will show up next year. And then I guess the second question, you know, you bought 3,400 homes this quarter. Is something more along that number or call it sub 5,000? Is that a better run rate, I guess, for, for where the business is now? And, and especially if you're going to be taking down facility capacity, um, in your, in your credit facilities this year is running at kind of that slower three to 5,000 pace what we should expect over the next four quarters? Yeah, I'll take the first part of that question, just comment a little bit about where we're pacing right now in terms of acquisitions and how it's showing up, and then I'll turn it over to Don to talk through how we're thinking about um, capital structure and financing in light of where we're pacing on volumes. You know, the first part of your question, there's two components to volumes right now. One is what's going on in the market, and the second is what's going on with our spread. And on the market side, you know, sellers are on the sidelines. I mean, I think we all know that. Uh, transactions are down 40% year on year. If you look across our markets and our buy box, new listings are the lowest they've ever been since 2004. And that just means there are fewer sellers in the market for us to engage with right now. Um, on our end, we're continuing to bed high spreads into our offers. And as you know, high spreads for us mean lower offers, lower offers lead to lower conversion, that leads to lower contracts. Um, we have to decrease our spreads a fair bit since late last year when they were at record levels, and I expect we'll continue to do so just given seasonal tailwinds as we come into the new year and also the fact that the housing market's starting to firm up a little bit. Uh, but the reality is the housing market remains uncertain, and we're going to continue to operate with a fair level of caution, and we'll continue to operate with high spreads for the foreseeable future. Um, so that's on volumes. We don't we don't break out where we're pacing specifically on volumes. I can I can tell you uh, for us, you know, Super Bowl tends to be a jumping off point for a lot of home sellers to get back in the market. And as we've been decreasing spreads since last year, you know, there's a lag in our business between offer to contract, and we do expect to see a pickup in volume as we move through the second quarter. Uh, seasonality goes on throughout the entire year. We're seeing tailwinds right now. Seasonality shows up in the form of a slower back half, so we may see increased spreads in the back half. But that's, that's how you think about volumes for the pace of the year. Don, do you want to talk a little bit about how we're thinking about sizing facilities? Yeah, happy to. I think, um, I mean, just to 
highlighted inventory balances at the end of the year were four and a half billion and we have 12 billion in capacity. Um, so that is more than adequate for the financing and sort of forward view of where we're headed. So our, and I think the other piece that's important to highlight is lenders like to be utilized. Uh, and so taking down that capacity is something we've done and modulating that capacity for the seven years that I've been here. Uh, so I think our, our, it's something we're very comfortable with reducing and feel like we will still have ample capacity to account for any upside to inventory. Great. Thanks for taking my questions. Thank you. Our next question comes from the line of Jason Helfstein with Oppenheimer. Your line is now open. Hey, thanks. This is Chad on for Jason. So you talked about 30% of your 23 transactions going through um, exclusives and markets where the marketplace is launched. Uh, two questions on that. Um, first, any sense what percent of your total markets you'll be launched in, um, you know, kind of by the end of the year? And then um, do you believe that that's driving the return to positive unit economics in the back half, or is that just, um, you know, kind of the, the improvement in the uh, new home cohorts? Thank you. Hey, Chad. Um, you know, our focus right now for, for 3P or for Marketplace is really to refine and test in a local market. Uh, you're excited about the signal we're seeing so far. And we're seeing sellers are being very excited to opt into the program. Uh, we have about 3% share of the listings in the market that we're trialing it right now. So uh, off to an encouraging start. But we really want to focus on first perfecting the customer experience, and then step number two is to build density and liquidity so that we can own that market. And we'll do that before we want to kind of spread out further. I, I don't know the number of markets we'll be at by the end of the year. It's, uh, we haven't given an actual target. Um, it will be a relatively, I think, small number um, right now, but we are hoping to pace to a higher number, you know, by the end of the year into 2024. It's unrelated to what Christy said as to how contribution margins are going to play out for the rest of the year. That entirely has to do with the the mix between our old book as we sell that off and as our new book becomes the vast majority to all of our margins in the second half. Thank you. Our next question comes from the line of Yugal Aronian with City. Your line is now open. Hey, uh, good afternoon, everyone. Um, I, I want to go, just go back to, to the macro for a second. And, um, you know, you're Talking about stabilization, just kind of in the last couple of weeks, we start to see rates go back up a little bit and um, you know, start to see that impact uh, mortgage demand again. So just want to get a sense of what you're building into to your spreads and what you're thinking on the macro, um, you know, as we move forward and you're bringing your spreads down a little bit. Just want to understand what your expectations are for, for the housing market as we work our way through the rest of the year. Yeah, happy to answer it. Yeah, so, I, look, if you look at the where the market is right now, we're continuing to see very low supply on the market, um, really multi-decade lows continuing. Uh, new listings are the lowest since 2004. So that's a good setup for more stable pricing in 2023. I think it's also important to keep in mind uh, how sort of the risk that we're taking from a housing price perspective. We typically own homes for called four months. So that's the duration of exposure we're taking. And if you look at home price appreciation, we have a fun chart in the back of our shareholder letter that shows month over month home price appreciation. If you look at the first half of the year, you almost always going back into the 80s, you see very strong home price appreciation, and then that moderates in the back half of the year. So this is the point of the year where 
given the strong leading indicators we've seen in January, we've been able to reduce those spreads. Uh, we continue, though, to be very cautious of the back half of the year, to your point, around interest rate volatility and how that could flow through to the impact on consumer demand. So our base case is that spread will actually need to increase in the back half of the year, um, especially if the Fed has to raise rates uh, higher to combat inflation, higher than people are expecting. Um, got it. And in terms of um, you know market expansion, buy box, and all those things, have you um, you know understanding we're, we're um, you know uh, on risk off mode and um, not purchasing global homes we were purchasing last year. Um, have you pulled back in, in, in any of the markets? Is your overall strategy changed? I'm guessing it hasn't really changed, but um, is it, does, does the pace of it change? Have you pulled back anywhere? Have you pulled back on your buy box at all? Um, or is that um, maybe just on hold in the near term until we get back to a more normalized market? Thanks. I think the way that we've tackled this uh, today and in the past is through spread dispersion. So we will account for changes or higher risk by market or even by price point by charging a different spread. Um, and so you can see that play out both in terms of specific uh, markets as well as within pockets within markets or zip codes or otherwise. And so that's really the lever by which we adjust pricing to account for that risk. So it's not pulling back on buy box to be specific or pulling, adjusting the spreads that are charging customers based on the riskiness of the Got it. Thanks. Thank you. Our next question comes from the line of Justin Patterson with KeyBank Capital Markets. Your line is now open. Great. Thank you very much, and good afternoon. Uh, Carrie, I wanted to go back to exclusive to start with. Can you talk about the steps to build density within those uh, markets and just really get the supply you need to succeed with that and perhaps just frame yourself to the core business? And then just a, a secondary question on uh, the Zillow relationship. I know it's very, very early here, but could you just talk about how we think about the pace of that relationship expanding, moving into new markets? How you think about the conversion quality from that funnel versus some of the other channels you lean on? Thank you. Yeah. Hey, Justin, do you mind bringing the first part of your first question? You broke up there a little bit for me. I had a hard time hearing it. Oh, sorry about that. The first question was just around um, phase two of the of the exclusives product. Uh, can you talk about just the steps needed to build density and market for that? It's really about aggregating supply and then from there, you know, aggregating buyer demand, um, which, you know, we have a head start on through our 1P business, but it's really about buying, bringing more buyers into the system um, over time. On the Zillow side, as you said, it's, it's, it's early. I mean, we had a Valentine's Day launch. So far, so good. Um, we're optimistic and enthusiastic about the prospects for that partnership. We're, you know, we'll expect to launch it in more markets over the course of the year. But for us, we think it's going to be a very interesting and a creative marketing channel for us and just allow us to put our brand and our offer in front of a lot more home sellers. Thank you. Thank you. Our next question comes from the line of Curtis Nagel with Bank of America. Your line is now open. Uh, great. Th thanks for taking the question. Um, Kerry, just wanted to focus for a sec on um, spreads. 
So, you know, the new court cohort, um, you know, you, you took up spreads, um, led to some nice contribution margins so far, albeit on lower uh, volumes. Um, I'm not sure if I heard this incorrectly, but it sounds like you might be pulling back uh, spreads a little bit as we go further uh, into the year. Um, and if that's the case, uh, how does that impact, um, you know, potential contribution margins, um, if that were the case? Uh, I think the comment we met is, one, we have been pulling, we've been reducing spreads since late last year when they were at record levels, you know, peak uncertainty, record level spreads, and we've been reducing them as we've come into the new year. Two reasons, seasonal tailwinds, and two, we have seen signs that the housing market is, you know, stabilizing. The comments that Dodd made earlier about where we are in terms of HPA prospects, the underpinning of like an absence of supply, new listings, what have you. Um, we expect to continue to do so for a while. That being said, um, seasonal t- tailwinds turn into seasonal headwinds in the second half of the year, every year. Um, so there is some chance that we'll look to like raise spreads again in the back half of the year. Uh, right. But we'll see. I mean, this is, you know, I think the, the beauty of our business is that it's dynamic and we're mm-hmm. able to raise spreads in response to what we're seeing in the market. Um, and we'll continue to do so as we get more signal. Okay. Got it. Um, and then just a follow up, uh, the one key guidance, um, you know, for the, you know, 370 to 390 uh, negative EBITDA, um, how should you think about the, the gap gross margins, um, that would be incorporated into that? Hey, Curtis, I'll take that. We don't generally provide guidance on gap gross margin. Uh, you can kind of back into contribution margin using adjusted EBITDA and adjusted OPEX. Um, and you can, you know, you can look at our, you can look at the table for the new book and old book of inventory in our shareholder letter to get an idea of the margins, the gap growth margins that we're seeing on those two books. Uh, there's also a breakout of inventory by new book and old book in the shareholder letter that would be helpful. Okay. Got it. Thank you. Thank you. As a reminder, to ask a question at this time, please press star 1-1 on your touchstone telephone. Our next question comes from the line of Ryan Tomasello with KBW. Your line is now open. Hi, everyone. Thanks for taking the questions. Um, can you maybe provide a bit more detail for how you plan to get to adjusted net income profitability at $10 billion of revenue? What assumptions you're baking in there for contribution margins, mix of, of 1P, 3P, OPEX, et cetera. I guess just running some back of the envelope math, assuming 5% contribution margins implies that you're assuming significant efficiencies on either the financing or OPEX side or, or maybe baking in higher unit economics altogether. So just trying to understand the moving pieces there. Thanks. Yeah, I'm happy to take that one, Ryan. Um, I mean, number one, uh, it bears mentioning we're highly focused on returning our business to adjust an income profitability as quickly as possible. For us, the tipping point is $10 billion of annualized revenue to get there. Um, and we believe we should get back there by, say, the middle of 2024, assuming, number one assumption, a more normalized home environment. If you go back at 2019 and look at where we were, which is a more, you know, good analog for a normal housing market, and you think about the share we had back then, and you adjust it for just where we are today, which is 4x bigger in terms of the combination of additional buy box expansion in the market, 
you know, with like for like share, frankly, even a little less than like for like share, gets you back to $10 billion in 2024. So that's on the top line. Uh, I don't think you have to squint too hard to get to that number. And then, by the way, add on, you know, much greater brand awareness than we had in 2019, much deeper partnership channels, what have you. And then on the on the margin side, I mean, I still we still think about the 1P business contributing 4 to 6%. But as I said in my earlier comments, we're going after at least 100 basis points of margin throughout the entire system. And we'd expect to be back to normalized turns, call that, you know, three to three and a half turns a year. I think you put all that together and you get to ANI positive. It does not have um, large assumptions for a mix of capital light or asset light business, i.e. 3P or list for certainty, for example. And uh, again, you know, you are biased. Our bias is to be conservative in how we kind of put out these markers. And so we haven't embedded a lot of new product lines into that number. So we feel good about the $10 billion marker. Okay, great. And then a quick follow-up would be um, just just trying to understand how you're thinking about the capital requirements for the business once you move past the 2Q cohort here and the business mix transitions to a balance of both the 1P and 3P transactions. Is there a minimum level of cash you are targeting that provides you with a large enough balance sheet to support what will still be a capital-intensive 1P business while also providing you with enough flexibility to invest in scaling the 3P business, which I assume you would look to consider some marketing spend there to drive adoption. Thanks. Yes, happy to answer that. So look, I think we're very comfortable executing our business plan with the $2 billion in capital that we have today, $1.3 billion in unrestricted cash. Uh, we don't guide beyond the first quarter, uh, but to your point, we do have minimum cash requirements in our financing facilities, but those are substantially below where our current cash balance is. So I think the plan that we've articulated, the plan that we're going after, uh, we are very comfortable with $2 billion in capital is more than enough to uh, finance the, the plans we're, we're marching against. Thank you. Our next question comes from the line of Ryan McKevney with Zellman & Associates. Your line is now open. Hi, thank you very much. Um, just to come back to exclusives, um, I have a three-part question, so I'll throw it out all at once. Um, so you mentioned in the letter um, that you be began to offer exclusives as an option to sellers in 4Q. So um, firstly, just any, any thoughts you can share on the initial reception from home sellers. Um, second part of the question, more generally, can you just talk about the value proposition of, uh, to, to home sellers of exclusives? Um, you know, I think we all understand the value prop around the, the 1P model with convenience and certainty of the cash offer, et cetera, but maybe you can talk about um, how you frame that value prop of ultimately why would a seller, you know, go the, the 3P option compared to um, listing traditionally. And then the last piece, and I can come back to these, sorry, it's a long question, um, Lastly, I think last quarter you mentioned a 5% service fee for third-party transactions. Is that um, still the expectation? And is that 5% service fee, is that specific to what a home seller um, would pay to list, or is that possibly some combination of um, kind of a fee charge to the seller but also fee ch a fee charge uh, to the home buyer? I'll do my best to remember all of that. Uh, let, me, let me start at the top. So we started with exclusive listings. That was taking our open door owned inventory and uh, windowing it in effect to 
to buyers that they could come and buy the home on an as-is, where-is, fixed-fee basis, and we have had really good success with that. We've had um, sell for anywhere from 15 to 20 percent in the first two weeks on those exclusive listing homes. I was using our inventory, and we continue to pursue that model. Um, step two, you, I think it's part, second part of your question was around what's the value prop is to sellers. Uh, the value prop to them is if they opt into putting in their home in the marketplace, they're still looking at a scenario where they are not enduring more than one showing, then they have a limited window of time by which we are going to surface multiple offers for them. One from the institutional network that we have in our relationships, which we've, we've had for years now, we can help monetize those and bring those offers to the fore that they can't otherwise get. And we can other, bring other offers from other buyers in our network to them. And then they have the option to choose um, to take that price or not. Um, they obviously also have the backup of our certain all-cash offer if that's something they want to avail themselves. So it's a lot less burdensome, plus time. There's still certainty in the process. Again, vastly superior to the traditional selling process today. That's that's the value prop to them. Um, as for the economics, I suspect we'll continue to tinker with them and experiment over time. Today, we charge a 5% fee to the seller, um, and we're sharing some of that with the buyer. How that shakes out over time, I don't know, so I think I'm a little low to commit to the specific of the unit economics quite now. That, for example, doesn't include any services of cash. There's no title escrow in there. All those things to come, but that's that is where we're at today. That's great. Thank you very much, Carrie. Um, one one additional question: uh, the comment about list with certainty. Um, I don't believe I've heard you talk about that before. So maybe you can just expand on on what that product is, um, you know, and how that how that kind of fits into the uh, into the broader equation? Yeah, I mean, in this high-spread environment, the good news is that we can still convert 10% of sellers because they're indexing on certainty and convenience. Um, but there's 90% that we're not addressing in the current high-spread environment. We want to make sure that we still give them the option to move. And so we are um, we'll be expanding our list with certainty products. They can list their home on the market with us um, to maximize market price still retain the certainty of our old cash offer that they can take at any time. Um, and so far, we're seeing about 20, 25% of customers choose with the certainty when presented with that option. So we're optimistic that we'll be driving more asset-like volume through that product over time in this environment. Got it. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Our last question comes from the line of Jay McCandless with Wetbush. Your line is now open. Hey, thanks for taking my follow-up. Um, so just, Carrie, I wanted to, to push a little bit more on if the mortgage market doesn't go down, the mortgage rates don't go down, if mortgage rates actually go up from here and we see sellers be even more reluctant to get out of the house they're in now, I guess – What's plan B and, and what does the business look like in that scenario? Do you walk away from higher price markets so you're not having to carry as much on, on the credit facilities? Do you go heavier, I don't know, into, into whether it's, you know, payments to, to get listings, things like that? Um, just maybe walk us through an environment where rates go up instead of down. Yeah, I mean, I'd say at the highest level, you know, I think we've, we've shown hopefully in what we've um provided in the shareholder letter, we can still create attractive unit economics, attractive cohorts, even in this environment of high rates, high mortgage rates, rate volatility, and we expect to continue to do so. You know, I, mortgage rates have been pretty volatile the last couple of weeks. Um, we're reflecting that in how we adjust for spread. 
So we'll, we'll continue to do that through the course of the year. Um, if volumes are continue to be suppressed for the industry and they continue to be down and that persists for a long period of time, you know, I think we know that it's imperative that we manage our cost structure. You know, our capital, um, good news is we have a lot of it, um, but we, it's very dear. And so it's imperative that we mitigate losses and preserve book value. And we're going to manage the business with that in mind. So um, we're not managing it to the absolute low point of the trough today. But if I look ahead to 2024, if that's sort of implicit in your comments and we're in for a, a longer trough period in the housing cycle, we'll take a harder look at our cost structure in light of that. We'll have to. Okay, great. Thanks for taking my follow-up. Thank you. I would now like to hand the conference back over to Carrie Willer for closing remarks. I just want to thank everyone for joining and participating today. Um, as hopefully you heard from us, we feel confident with decisions we've made to date to navigate what has been a challenging housing environment are enabling us to achieve both our customer goals and our long-term financial objectives. So thank you, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. This concludes today's conference call. Thank you for participating. You may now disconnect.